Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey guys, Nate Hale here. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about one of our episode sponsors. Recently, I've been using the new Vasabla in-ear headphones by Studio, And I have to tell you, these are some of the best headphones I've ever used. They're sleek, stylish, and very comfortable. They feature cutting-edge Bluetooth 4.1 technology with multi-pairing capabilities. They last a long time on a single charge, too. Vasabla boasts up to 8 hours of unlimited playtime with up to 10 days on standby. On top of that, they sound really great, too. The Vasabla in-ear headphones feature the simple, elegant Scandinavian design that Studio is known for. Studio is a company that wants to revolutionize the way people see headphones, not just as tech, but as a fashionable lifestyle accessory. Right now, they're offering free worldwide shipping. And if you place your order in December before Christmas, they'll send it to you in a complimentary gift box. Listeners to The Conspirators can get an additional 15% off any purchase right now by clicking on the link in the show notes and using the discount code CONSPIRATOR at checkout. Thanks again, and now back to my show. The rhyme must have driven her absolutely mad. That damnable sing-song children's rhyme. It didn't matter how far she traveled, or how many good deeds she performed, or how many years went by, the rhyme always remained. She was a good Christian woman. Couldn't people see that? She had been all her life. And among her Christian teachings was to always turn the other cheek. So that's just what she did. Even still, it never seemed to matter how long she endured in grim silence. Every spring in Fall River, Massachusetts, she could hear children skipping rope and like clockwork, Every year they'd be singing it, the same rhythmic chant that besmirched her good family name, over and over and over again. Decades had passed since the brutal murder of her father and stepmother. She had attempted to move on with her life, to move on from the dark days when she of all people had been accused of the heinous crime. She even changed her name, preferring to be called Lisbeth now. Lizzie was a girl's name, and she was a grown woman after all. She'd long since left the home and life she'd lived on 2nd Street behind. There were too many dark memories there, even though the blood had long since been scrubbed clean. Some stains run too deep to avoid altogether. But even though Lisbeth had moved on, she really hadn't traveled far at all. She'd only moved a few miles away to that part of the city that lied just up the hill where only the finest people in town lived. But although she was very clearly one of the fine wealthy people, her contemporaries still refused to accept her. Oh, she tried her best to fit into high society, but high society didn't seem to want her. She remained a lifelong member of the Central Congregational Church, as well as a member of the Christian Endeavor Society. But that was as close as she would ever get to the upper crust inner circle. 
She even taught Sunday school to the poor immigrant children, even though many of those children were the very same ones who mocked her endlessly through song. Over the years, Lisbeth had been forced to endure curious children standing on tiptoes to peek through her windows, hoping to catch a glimpse of her. Sometimes they'd throw rotten eggs at her house, or tie up her doorknobs and stick pins in the doorbell to make it ring nonstop. Children could be so cruel. And the adults were no better. They waited ghoulishly around the Oak Grove Cemetery, hoping to see her during one of her regular visits to tend the graves of her father and stepmother. They rubbernecked and jeered at her. She could hear their harsh, judgmental whispers behind her back. And yet, Elizabeth endured it all in silence. Turn the other cheek, that's what the Bible said. And that's just what she did. Elizabeth tried to show the world that she could be kind, that she was not the monster that everyone made her out to be. It was she who would sometimes leave slices of chocolate cake for the coal delivery man inside her basement. And it was she who had once given a hand-painted bowl full of gumdrops to a sick little girl. Would a monster do things like that? And yet nothing Lisbeth could do could dissuade people from believing what they wanted to believe about her. Every year on the anniversary of her father and stepmother's deaths, the Fall River Daily Globe would run one of their dreadful editorials practically screaming for justice to be had for the terrible fiend who had brutally slaughtered Andrew J. Borden and his wife. They never even had to mention Lisbeth by name. Everyone knew who they meant. It was all right there in that damnable rhyme. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax, and when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Those four cruel sing-song lines would haunt Lizzie Borden throughout her life. And the cruelest part of all is that practically every word of it was wrong. I'm Nate Hale, and it's time to bury the hatchet in the legend of Lizzie Borden. And this is The Conspirators. The Borden house would have been quite unusual, even if it hadn't been the site of two of the most famous murders in American history. The house at 92 2nd Street was not a single-family home originally. It started out as two identical upper and lower flats, but when Andrew Borden purchased the property in 1872, he tore out the upstairs kitchen and converted the area into a master bedroom. He then joined the two downstairs bedrooms together into a large dining room. Thus, what was left was an unusual layout with a house that was just 20 feet wide, with no real hallways and an odd arrangement of interconnecting rooms. One where you would have actually cross through one bedroom in order to get to the next one. This meant that it would be practically impossible to have any privacy or find any real comfort within those walls. Throughout the late 19th century, Fall River, Massachusetts was a prosperous mill town that was divided between the wealthy mill owners and the mill workers. These divisions brought with them a lot of harsh feeling and resentment between the native-born citizens and the large immigrant community, who were always getting blamed for society's ills. In Fall River, the working class lived down near the river, close to the mills, while the wealthiest members of Fall River society lived up the hill, looking down on everyone. There were seven wealthy families who controlled the town, 
Among those was the Borden family, although not all the Bordens were born equally wealthy. One such case was Andrew J. Borden, a local bank president and businessman who didn't inherit the vast wealth many of his relatives did. He actually worked for every penny he had, which was a lesson he carried with him for the remainder of his life. He began his career as a maker of fine furniture and coffins, but even as his wealth grew, he continued to live in the same modest house in a middle-class neighborhood on 2nd Street. He lived frugally and raised his children to live the same way. The house did not have gas lighting or indoor plumbing, nor any other modern conveniences. Andrew's first wife died while his two daughters, Emma and Lizzie, were still quite young. He married his second wife, Abby, when Lizzie was just two years old. From early on, it appeared there was never going to be a very loving relationship between the girls and their stepmother. It would be easy to think of Abby in terms of the evil stepmother trope, although most historians tend to dismiss this idea. It's widely believed it was more Emma and Lizzie's standoffish attitude toward Abby Borden that kept them apart. Even when they were young, the Borden girls refused to accept her, treating Abby more like a servant than a parent. In truth, there's a whole lot we don't know about Lizzie and Emma Borden prior to the murders in 1892. Most historians agree that as a Borden, Lizzie felt she was entitled to live up on the hill along with the rest of her wealthier kin. But Andrew's choice to keep living in the modest house at 92 Second Street kept her isolated from high society. For Lizzie, her only real chance to connect with the upper crust was by teaching Sunday school at the well-to-do Central Congregational Church. She was also a member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Despite how uncomfortable she was with her standing in life, Lizzie and Emma never moved out of that house while Andrew was alive. They grew up as spinsters. At the time of the murders in 1892, Lizzie was 32 years old and Emma was 41. At their ages, it was considered quite unusual for a couple women of their social standing to have never found husbands. But the two sisters continued to live under Andrew Borden's roof, with only each other for company. In 1887, tensions really began to erupt inside the Borden home when Andrew purchased a house for Abby's younger sister to save her from being homeless. This infuriated Lizzie and Emma, and in order to placate his daughter's anger, Andrew gave them their grandfather's house, along with the rental income it generated. But this didn't quell the hard feelings between them. Quite the opposite, actually. It was around this time that the family stopped taking meals together. Also around this time, Lizzie stopped calling Abby mother, and really began to give her the cold shoulder at every turn. Some accounts tend to paint Andrew Borden as nothing but a cold miser. It is true he was tight with his money, but he did care for Lizzie enough to send her on an expensive European tour in 1890, along with some of her wealthier cousins. But although this trip gave Lizzie a taste of the high life she always craved, it didn't seem to satisfy her. To the contrary, afterwards, Lizzie appeared to become even more frustrated with her living situation. After Lizzie returned, strange things began to occur around the Borden home. One day while Andrew and Abby were away, someone committed a daring daylight robbery inside the house. Whoever did it snuck into Abby's bedroom and stole some jewelry, about $50 in cash, and some streetcar tickets from Mrs. Borden's desk. At the time of the robbery, Lizzie, Emma, and their servant, Bridget Sullivan, were all home. Yet none of them reported an intruder. 
When the police investigated, Lizzie drew attention upon herself when she excitedly led them around the house, pointing out a door where she believed an intruder had broken in and other details she said were left behind by the fiend. She was practically giddy about it. Lizzie became the obvious suspect when it became apparent to the police that only someone within her knowledge of the house would even know where to begin looking for Mrs. Borden's jewelry. From that point on, all the doors inside the Borden house were locked. Andrew Borden began leaving the key to his bedroom sitting on the mantle right there in plain sight, almost as if he were daring someone to try to take it. After that, other rumors began to crop up around Lizzie. Some stories say she was a kleptomaniac, and she was caught shoplifting on more than one occasion. It was only through her father's wealth and connections that she had been able to remain free. Yet another unconfirmed story says Lizzie decapitated her stepmother's cat, and that Andrew slaughtered Lizzie's pet pigeons in retaliation. In truth, though, we really know precious little about what life was like inside the Borden house leading up to that fateful day of August 4th, 1892. For the most part, it was a pretty typical Thursday, except for a couple of minor irregularities. For one, Emma Borden was away from town that day visiting friends. For another, they had an unexpected guest in the house at the time. That was John Morse, the brother of Andrew's first wife, who showed up by surprise only a day earlier. On Thursday morning, Morse ate breakfast with Andrew and Abby, then left the Borden home at about 8.45 a.m. to go visit other relatives. Andrew got up to leave for work a little after that, but he wasn't feeling well that morning, and he returned home a little before 11. This wasn't particularly surprising because in the days prior, the entire family had come down with a rather nasty stomach ailment that left them all feeling terrible. But in the case of Andrew, his unexpected arrival that day would prove to be most unfortunate. It was a decision that would both end his life and change daughter Lizzie's forever. At approximately 11.10 a.m., the Borden's servant, Bridget, was lying down in her bedroom when she heard Lizzie crying out for help from downstairs. Come quick, she ordered. Father's been murdered downstairs. Bridget rushed down three flights of steps, only to stumble into a horror show. The blood-soaked body of Andrew Borden lie on the sitting room sofa. The red soup still dripped from the horsehair cushions and puddled on the flowered carpet below. Andrew's skull was so bloody and broken it scarcely resembled anything human anymore. Lizzie ordered Bridget to rush across the street and fetch their neighbor, Dr. Bowen. Bridget arrived on Dr. Bowen's doorstep only to be told the doctor was out making house calls. When Bridget told Lizzie the doctor wasn't home, she next sent her back out to find Lizzie's best friend, Alice Russell. Bridget was just returning from alerting Alice Russell of Andrew Borden's murder when she ran into Dr. Bowen just as he was stepping out of a carriage in front of his house. While all this was going on, Lizzie's next-door neighbor, Adelaide Churchill, went to the Borden house to see what all the commotion was about. When Lizzie told the horrified Miss Churchill about the murder, she immediately asked where Lizzie's mother was. Lizzie responded that she didn't know. But then she added without being asked that the murderer had to be an enemy of her father, for they had all taken ill a few days earlier with what she believed had been poisoned milk. It was shortly after this that Bridget finally returned to the house with Dr. Bowen in tow. The doctor gave Andrew Borden's body a cursory examination, 
Whoever murdered the man had all but obliterated one side of his face with a number of blows from an unknown weapon. His skull was caved in and one of the man's eyes was split in half. It was at Lizzie's insistence that Bridget and Mrs. Churchill went upstairs to look for Andrew Borden. They didn't even have to go all the way up to the second level before they saw Abby Borden's body laid out on the floor of the bedroom. She lay face down on the carpet between the bed and the bureau in a thick puddle of drying blood. Normally this would have attracted the attention of every member of the Fall River Police Force, but that day just so happened to also be the day of an annual policeman's excursion to a popular amusement park. It's believed that at least half the police force, if not more, were at the amusement park that day when word finally reached them of the vicious murders at the Borden house. Keep in mind, by now the crime scene had been hopelessly compromised. Neighbors and curiosity seekers had begun flocking to the Borden house to see the bodies for themselves. Not that it would have made a difference. Back then, forensic science was still in its infancy, and the Fall River Police didn't really have any experience dealing with a crime of this magnitude. Typically, the biggest crimes the Fall River Police might investigate were public drunkenness and prostitution. The county medical examiner, William Dolan, performed autopsies on the bodies right there on the scene. With his help and by questioning everyone, the police began to build a timeline of events for that morning. It was determined that at 9.30 a.m., Abby was cleaning the guest bedroom where John Morse was spending the night. When the murderer struck, killing her with a weapon that almost certainly wasn't an axe, despite what the poem says. The timing of Abby's death was important for multiple reasons. For one thing, it meant that the killer had to have stuck around the house for another hour in order to murder Andrew Borden when he arrived home at 10.40 and went to lie down on the sitting room sofa for a nap. For another, it meant that since Abby died first, this meant that Andrew Borden automatically inherited her vast fortune, which was then inherited by Lizzie and Emma after Andrew died next. It's probably a good time to dispel another inaccuracy perpetuated by the famous rhyme. Despite what the children's poem claimed, Abby Borden was struck by 19 blows that day, not 40, and Andrew was struck with 11 blows in total, not 41. Even then, it was still overkill and both of them were probably dead after the second or third blow. One of the very few contemporary investigative tools the police used that day was to actually call in a photographer to snap photos of the bodies in the crime scene. That's pretty much where modern police work began and ended, though. Although officers did search the house rather thoroughly, there was still a lot of stigma around the idea of these men looking through a woman's things. It was something that just wasn't done, which has led to a lot of speculation about what evidence they might have missed. They did find what many people believed to be the murder weapon in a box in the basement hidden behind the chimney. The box contained three hatchets, one of which had most of the hilt freshly broken off. It was covered in ash, and it was believed it may have been washed clean then dried in the ash. Aside from the hatchets, the police failed to find any other significant clues. The fact is, though, that so many people had trampled through the house that morning, it would have been impossible to tell what potential evidence might have walked out with someone. It's believed that as many as 2,000 people showed up at the Borden house the day of the murders. The entire town of Fall River basically shut down as people waited breathlessly by, hoping to learn some juicy details of the crime. Newspaper reporters converged on the scene, each trying to outscoop one another with every little rumor and detail they could scrape together. Wire services spread the story worldwide. It's hard to understate what a huge story this was. 
It was so widely reported that it put an enormous amount of pressure on the Fall River Police Department to arrest someone quickly. With the community on edge and demanding justice, the police kicked off their investigation by rounding up the usual suspects. The first place they looked was the local immigrant community. Newspapers from that very day talked about the possibility that a Portuguese immigrant might have committed the terrible deed. As has been seen repeatedly throughout history, immigrants were often singled out as the source of all society's problems. At the same time, police began looking early on at the possibility that the murders had been an inside job. The police questioned John Morse, but his alibi proved to be airtight when the relatives he had visited confirmed he had been with them at the time of the murders. As I mentioned, the other member of the household, Lizzie's sister Emma, was out of town on the day of the murders. That only left two people inside the house at the time of the murders, the Borden's servant, Bridget Sullivan, and of course, Lizzie herself. Bridget Sullivan was briefly considered a suspect, but there was no apparent motive for her. If she killed the Bordens, then she'd almost certainly be axing herself out of a job. Lizzie, though, well, she was present in and around the house at the time of the murders, and she stood to gain financially from her parents' deaths. Suspicions arose almost immediately when Deputy Marshal John Fleet questioned Lizzie and asked her if she had any idea who might have wanted to kill her father and mother. To which Lizzie promptly replied, She wasn't her mother. She was her stepmother. Her real mother died when she was little. It was an oddly cold statement that cemented in a lot of people's minds the idea that there had been no love lost between Abby and Lizzie Borden. On Friday, August 5th, Lizzie and Emma placed a prominent ad in the Fall River Herald offering a $5,000 reward for the arrest and conviction of Andrew and Abby's murderer. That same day, another article appeared in the competing Fall River Globe that quoted a local druggist named Eli Benz, who claimed that the day before the murder, Lizzie entered his shop and asked to purchase 10 cents worth of prussic acid, a deadly poison also known as hydrogen cyanide. Lizzie told him she wanted to put it on the edges of a sealskin cape to discourage moths or other vermin from nibbling on it. Benz had never before had a customer make such a request, and he had to inform her that he would not be able to sell it to her without a doctor's prescription. It was certainly a troubling accusation, if true. Even still, there was some reason to believe it might not be true, though. According to other reports, the wife of a state police inspector had been involved in a sting operation in Fall River, testing whether clerks would sell poison to a customer without a prescription. Just three days before the Borden murder, undercover officers involved in the sting and asked about purchasing prussic acid at another nearby pharmacy. Could Benz's account have been a case of mistaken identity? It's possible. After the story broke, the Fall River Herald and the Fall River Globe continued to argue back and forth whether it really had been Lizzie or not. Pressure remained high for the police to arrest a suspect. On Saturday evening, Fall River's mayor, John Coughlin, arrived at Lizzie and Emma's house for a social visit, and that's when he informed them that Lizzie was now the prime suspect. This came as a total shock to the citizens of Fall River. The idea that a woman could have possibly committed such a brutal murder was practically inconceivable to the very Victorian way of thinking people had. Certainly if the Bordens had been poisoned to death, then they would have believed wholeheartedly in Lizzie's guilt. Poison was considered a woman's weapon. But a hatchet? No, that was strictly something only a man would use. On Tuesday, August 9th, an inquest was conducted at the Fall River Police Station. 
It was the only time during the investigation when Lizzie would be questioned on the record. Which makes it all the more troubling that all the official police transcripts of Lizzie's testimony that day have been lost over time. The only remaining transcripts we have are those printed in the following day's newspapers. During the inquest, Lizzie was asked to account for her whereabouts throughout the time of the murder, and her answers were troubling, to say the least. Her sister Emma sat by Lizzie's side as she gave a confused and conflicting account of her morning. First, she told them she was ironing handkerchiefs. Then she was reading a magazine. When her father came home, she said she was on the upstairs landing, except she was also back in the kitchen again, depending on which story we choose to believe. Lizzie then said she spent about 20 minutes eating pears outside, and then said she went into the barn to look for lead sinkers for an upcoming fishing trip. Although when police asked, Lizzie admitted she hadn't been fishing in years. By the way, one more myth that should be dispelled about the case was about the weather that day. Later on, prosecutors would make a big deal about how incredibly hot it was that day, and how there was no way Lizzie would have spent any time inside the stifling barn. The prosecutor once claimed it was more than 100 degrees Fahrenheit that day, although in truth that's a major exaggeration. It was actually a pretty typical August day with a recorded high of 83. Now, even if Lizzie Borden really didn't commit the murders of her father and stepmother, she certainly didn't do herself any favors that day with the evasive answer she gave. Although there may actually be another explanation why she gave such rambling testimony. It turns out Dr. Bowen had prescribed morphine sulfate for her nerves following the murders. And Lizzie was almost certainly drugged to the gills when she showed up at the police station. After her testimony, the presiding judge ordered that Lizzie be arrested and tried for the murder of her parents. There were no facilities for women in the Fall River Jail, so Lizzie was carted away to Taunton 20 miles away, where she was held until trial. Surprisingly, several members of Fall River Society rose to Lizzie's defense following her arrest. It was simply inconceivable that a woman of such high status could possibly have brutally murdered her parents. Even beyond Fall River's high society, several women's groups nationwide took up Lizzie's cause and began writing letters to the authorities and publishing articles claiming her innocence. Some of the women's groups claimed Lizzie as their own in support of various causes they were in favor of, such as allowing women to be able to serve on juries. One such group argued that Lizzie could not possibly be tried by a jury of her peers since the entire jury was male. In November of 1892, a grand jury was convened and all the evidence against Lizzie was reviewed. It was the testimony of one witness in particular that clinched the idea in many people's minds of Lizzie's guilt. Lizzie's best friend, Alice Russell, recalled seeing Lizzie burn a dress at the kitchen stove just three days after the murder. Lizzie told Alice the dress was stained with paint, although immediately after burning it in the fire, Lizzie admitted regret at having done so because she felt it made her look even more guilty. Now, of course, a lot of people believe that the dress had been stained with blood and Lizzie was destroying evidence. But could it really have been stained with paint? Consider the fact that this occurred three days after the murder. So where had that dress been hiding all that time? By then, the police had searched the house thoroughly, and the only blood-stained clothing they found was a bucket of bloody rags Lizzie claimed were used for her and Emma's menstrual cycles. Although Bridget Sullivan did tell police she had done laundry just a couple days before the murder and had not seen the bucket then, and would have certainly washed the rags if she had. The grand jury handed down three counts of murder, one for Andrew, one for Abby, and just for good measure, one for both of them. 
The ensuing trial was such a media sensation that amateur sleuths began popping up everywhere to offer their own opinions on whether Lizzie had really done it or not. Some people came up with elaborate theories on where Lizzie had hidden the blood-stained dress. Others made unsubstantiated claims that Lizzie committed the murders buck-naked. One of the main pieces of evidence that Lizzie didn't do it is the simple fact that no one ever identified any blood on her immediately after the murder. And considering how brutal the crime had been, you'd expect she'd have been covered in the stuff. There were several tips from psychic mediums claiming to have special knowledge granted to them by the spirits. There were even a number of cranks who gave their own false confessions to the murders. The trial began at the New Bedford Courthouse on June 5, 1893. On the prosecution side was District Attorney Hosea M. Knowlton, as well as another talented DA from Essex County named William H. Moody. But on the side of the defense, Lizzie had assembled a legal dream team that included her father's attorney, Andrew Jennings. Along with the former Massachusetts governor, George D. Robinson, it was rumored that Governor Robinson had been paid the princely sum of $25,000 for his services. It was a massive amount for the time, although he would prove to be worth every penny of it. In accordance with state law back then, there were three judges presiding over Lizzie Borden's murder trial. One of these was Justice Justin Dewey, who had been appointed to the bench by Governor Robinson just seven years earlier. The Lizzie Borden trial was like the O.J. Simpson trial of the era. Newspapers ran wall-to-wall coverage of every aspect of the case. Advertisers even casually mentioned the murders in some of their ads. Reporters wrote about even the tiniest details like what the women in the audience were wearing. Lizzie arrived in court every day wearing all black, as was fitting of a woman who was supposed to be in mourning. Governor Robinson was a notorious image maker, and had carefully instructed Lizzie on how to behave in order to strike the most sympathy with the jury. He told Lizzie to carry flowers with her on several occasions, and showed her how to hide her face behind her fan during particularly gruesome medical descriptions of the bodies. At one point, the prosecutor tossed a dress onto the evidence table. Whether it was by accident or a carefully choreographed moment, he managed to knock over a box containing the shattered skulls of Andrew and Abby Borden, revealing them to the audience. Lizzie fainted dead away. Lizzie's displays of tender femininity proved vital to her defense. The prosecution's case was built almost entirely on circumstantial evidence, as there were no witnesses who could actually state beyond a doubt they saw Lizzie murder her parents. The prosecutors introduced the broken hatchet the police found into evidence. Expert witnesses testified that the hatchet matched the wounds in both skulls, but they couldn't say with 100% certainty whether this was really the murder weapon or not. In fact, traces of blood and hair found in the hatchet were later revealed to be from an animal. Another blow landed on the prosecution's case when Lizzie's previous testimony at the police inquest was tossed out by the three-judge panel. Although this was many decades before the Miranda warning was made the law of the land in criminal cases, there was still an understanding at the time that a suspect must be made aware that they were under suspicion by police while being questioned. Since no such warning had been given to Lizzie Borden at the time of her questioning, her testimony was declared inadmissible in court. Then the testimony given by the druggist, Eli Bentz, was also thrown out of court. The judges ruled his testimony to be irrelevant since the incident involving the prussic acid occurred before the murders, and since the Bordens had been killed with a blunt object, not poison. After that, the defense managed to tear apart the story by Lizzie's close friend Alice Russell that she burned the dress. 
when Alice and Lizzie's seamstresses both testified that the dress really had been stained with paint. Even the house painter came forward to corroborate the statement. Lizzie herself never testified at her trial. When both sides rested and it came time for the jury to deliberate, Justice Dewey was selected to instruct the jury on how to rule. This would prove to be one of the most controversial moments from the trial, because at the time, Justice Dewey pretty much restated the defense's entire case, as well as cited what a good Christian woman Lizzie was, and how unlikely it was that a Sunday school teacher could ever murder someone. He even called into question the prosecution's own witnesses. After only 90 minutes of deliberation, the jury returned with a verdict of not guilty. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Before we continue, I wanted to remind you about today's sponsor, Studio. I've been using Studio's new in-ear headphones, the Vossabla, and I think they're terrific. They're stylish, comfortable, and they sound fantastic. If you order from Studio in December, they'll send your order to you in a complimentary gift box with free shipping on top of that. Listeners of the Conspirators can even get 15% off their order now by using the coupon code CONSPIRATOR at checkout. After clicking on the link I'll provide in the show notes. Thanks again, and now, back to the show. After 10 months under arrest, Lizzie Borden walked out of the courthouse a free woman. She returned home to Fall River expecting to be accepted with open arms by the members of high society who had defended her for so long. But this wasn't to be the case. Apparently, the elite's sympathy only went so far. After the trial, Lizzie Borden was widely shunned by her contemporaries. Even in church, when Lizzie sat in the Borden family pew, she found all the other pews around her empty. It's a mystery just why Lizzie Borden ever chose to stay on living in Fall River. She had inherited more than enough money to live anywhere in the world she wanted. At the time of Andrew's death, his estate was estimated at $300,000, an amount equivalent to $8 million today. Yet Lizzie and Emma moved only a short distance up the hill. They purchased a luxurious home that Lizzie dubbed Maplecroft. This was finally the kind of home Lizzie felt she always deserved. She now had a full staff of live-in maids, a housekeeper, and a coachman and all the other comforts her considerable fortune could buy. She changed her name to Lisbeth, an act that was considered quite scandalous at the time, although newspapers would continue to refer to her as Lizzie. Then, of course, there was the famous song. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax, and when she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. No one knows for certain where the poem originated from, 
Some stories attribute it to the work of an imaginative newspaper reporter who set the poem to the tune of Tarara Boomdie. Some versions say when it was originally written, the poem only referenced 20 whacks for her mother and 21 for her father. Other people even tried adding on additional verses that never caught on the way the original four lines did. One such verse went, Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing. Even today the question remains whether Lizzie actually committed the murders or not. One story claims that an 1893 book titled The Fall River Tragedy so upset Lizzie with its claims that she bought up all the copies and burned them. Although this is widely believed, it's yet another thing about the Borden story that is not actually true. That story was inaccurately reported by writer Victoria London, who published a biography of Lizzie Borden, in which she proposed that Lizzie may have committed the murders while in a fugue state and had no memory of actually doing the deed. Another prominent theory suggests that Lizzie may have been sexually abused by her father, which drove her to murder him. Like the story about the book burning, there is little evidence to support this, though. Lizzie's sexuality weighs heavily on another prominent theory. In 1984, novelist Ed McBain wrote a fictionalized account of the murders titled Lizzie, in which he suggested that Lizzie Borden murdered her mother and father after Abby caught her in a lesbian tryst with their servant, Bridget Sullivan. Over the years, there have been numerous suggestions that Lizzie might have been secretly gay, something that would have been a major scandal for the era. It's certainly possible Lizzie was a lesbian, although there appears to be much less evidence of an affair with Bridget. It should be noted that later in life, Bridget Sullivan married a man and moved to Butte, Montana, where she died in 1948. It's there that she allegedly gave a deathbed confession to her sister, in which she admitted that she changed her testimony on the stand in order to protect Lizzie. One other piece of evidence people point to that suggests Lizzie might have been a lesbian stems from the friendship she struck up in later years with a stage actress from New York named Nance O'Neill. Several years later, O'Neill would also become a film star, but back then the lifestyle of an actress was considered far too unseemly for proper Fall River society. So it was considered positively scandalous when Lizzie hosted parties for O'Neill and her actor buddies on several occasions at Maplecroft. In truth, we don't know any of the particulars of Lizzie and Nance O'Neill's relationship, or whether there was anything romantic about it. But something about their relationship did manage to cause a rift between Lizzie and her sister Emma, who left Maplecroft after 1905, and the sisters never met again. Strangely enough, even though they never laid eyes on one another again, the sisters died within nine days of each other. Lizzie died on June 1, 1927, after complications following gallbladder surgery. Emma died from chronic nephritis nine days later, at the age of 76 in a New Hampshire nursing home. Although Lizzie Borden has always remained the chief suspect in her parents' murders, she's not the only one. One story allegedly comes from a former nurse of Lizzie's who claimed Lizzie confided in her that a boyfriend of hers committed the murders for her and hid in a closet while police searched the home. Another theory from a book by author Arnold Brown claims that an illegitimate son of Andrew Borden named William showed up at the house on August 4, 1892 and tried to extort money from his father before murdering him. Yet another version of events from author Frank Spearing says that it was Emma who committed the murders, not Lizzie, and that she snuck home that fateful day without anyone's knowledge. Lizzie Borden's story has been depicted numerous times in literature, music, film, theater, and television. This includes a 1952 musical, a ballet, an opera, and several movies and TV shows. And like any good historical mystery, 
The legend wouldn't be complete without an old-fashioned ghost story to go with it. Today, the Lizzie Borden house has been converted into a bed and breakfast. Many would-be ghost hunters have paid to stay in the room where Abby Borden was hacked to pieces. Guests have claimed to have heard floorboards creak from empty rooms, to have seen the chandelier flicker on and off mysteriously, to have heard a woman softly weeping in the middle of the night. Some have even claimed to have seen the apparition of a woman in Victorian-era clothing straightening the beds. In the end, we'll never know for certain who killed the Bordens. It may well have been Lizzie. Although in recent years, there have been a growing number of people who suspect the mysterious William Borden, the alleged illegitimate son of Andrew Borden. I say alleged because there aren't even any birth records that proved William existed at all. Now, if William really was Andrew's illegitimate son, though, the lack of birth records wouldn't really be all that surprising, considering a great number of people would want to keep that scandal under wraps. Those who believe William committed the crime say Lizzie always suspected her half-brother was responsible, but remained silent about it for fear of the scandal this would bring upon her family. There are those who believed William Borden spent the remainder of his life in a mental institution. Others say he lived on a farm in East Taunton, where he was found dead of an apparent suicide on April 17, 1901. Legend has it he was found hanging from a tree after ingesting some poison. Even before his death, William's neighbors considered him to be a highly eccentric individual, and not someone you wanted to cross paths with. People who did would be chased away by William, who threatened to kill them. Oh, and he did this by brandishing a hatchet. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you so much to Janet, Heather, Thomas, and the Britner for signing up. I really appreciate everything each and every one of you do. Just a reminder, patrons of the show get access to lots of cool bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. Another easy way to help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you're not on Apple, no problem. We're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.